0: Christians should not claim that Christianity is absolute truth. That is not our claim. Our claim is that Jesus is the truth. That Jesus is the Logos of God, the Word of God made flesh, and Jesus Christ is truth. But Christianity is the religion that develops around and in response to the reality of the Logos becoming flesh in life, death, burial, resurrection.
1: That was Brian Zond, and this is the Things Above podcast. Today's guest for our Things Above conversation is Brian Zond. Brian Zond is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church. It's a non-denominational Christian congregation in St. Joseph, Missouri, or Missouri, if you're from there. Brian and his wife, Perry, founded the church in 1981. Brian's also the author of several books, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, and his latest book, When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes. So, Brian, welcome.
0: Well, Jim, thank you. It's it's my privilege to be with you.
1: Well, you are a brother from another mother. I have always enjoyed being around you and your teaching and your writing, um, and this book is no exception. Your your latest book, uh, when everything's on fire, is fantastic. So, I'm going to start with the question I ask every author who's on the show: pretty basic one. Why did you write this book?
0: You want the story? Can I tell the story? Yeah. You know, I don't go looking for things to write. I really don't. I mean, I really don't. I don't sit around and think, hmm, what could I write next? That really never happens to me. Um, I write, this will sound, I don't know. I don't know how this will sound, but I write what I cannot not write. I write Hmm. from compulsion. And this is what happened. In 2019... Perry and I, for the third time, we were walking the Camino de Santiago. Now, people probably get tired of me talking about this, but I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of the best things we've ever done. When we walked it for the first time in 2016, it really, it really was central to healing our souls that had picked up, you know, just the damage of pastoring for 35 years, you're going to get some wounds. And and uh, that experience healed our souls. And by the way, we just, we just uh, celebrated the 40th anniversary of our church, so we've been pastoring one congregation for 40 years. Anyway, so in 2019, we're back to walk this Camino. This is a medieval pilgrim route that begins, at least as far as the most popular route, begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, in the Pyrenees, and then crosses into Spain, and 500 miles later, as you walk across northern Spain, you arrive in the cathedral at Santiago de Compostela. And when you're walking the Camino, you know, it's, your life is reduced to the blessed simplicity of just carrying what you need on your back and walking ever westward 12 to 15 miles a day, and it gives you a lot of time to think. Plus, the Camino de Santiago is something like a time machine in the sense that because of the nature of it, you can really sense an earlier epoch, uh, an earlier time. It's not that hard to imagine something of what it was like to walk a religious pilgrimage a 1,000 years ago because you're surrounded by all of these old churches and chapels and monasteries and convents and all of that, and you're encountering it. Well, as we were walking, I found myself thinking, you know... Uh, We live in a different time. There was a time when the wider society more or less assisted people in their faith, in believing in God, that that was just the way that people lived their lives in a conscious awareness of God. We no longer live in that time. Now, I'm not overly romantic about the medieval period. I know it had all of its own challenges and faults and all of that. But at least it was a time that was something of a friend to faith. We no longer live in that time, and I was very aware of that. And I was thinking about the many people that I know, either just by report or personally, who have found holding on to Christian faith in our secular age a challenge and a struggle. And as you might imagine, when you're on these long walks, you have plenty of time just to think. And I was thinking, well, what would I say to these people? If we could walk together, what might our conversation be like? If someone said, hey, BZ, I'm just having trouble holding on to my Christian faith. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my Christian faith. Uh, There's things I can't reconcile with my Christian faith, etc. What might our conversation be like? If we could walk together a day or two on this Camino and have, you know, five, six, 10, 12 hours of conversation, what might it be like? And I was thinking about that really for about two weeks off and on, uh, 200 miles into this long walk. We had arrived at this lovely hilltop village of uh, Castro Haris, a beautifully situated little village on the Camino, and we got our lodging, and I was sitting outside where we were staying on this terrace. And I had a little notebook with me, just a little notebook. And I, I sat there, and I was thinking, and I wrote at the top, when everything's on fire, that was that was the thought that it feels like everything's on fire. When everything's on fire, and then I listed about eleven conversations that I could imagine having with people in our secular age that are finding finding a, a, a challenge to hold on to Christian faith, and those became the eleven chapters. And it, I really stuck to that; it didn't really deviate from that, which is a little bit unusual, I know. You know, as an author yourself, Jim, you'll know that usually you have an idea for a book, and it turns out quite different. This was an a this was a case where, kind of how I thought it was going to go is how it came out. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'd given it the title "When Everything's on Fire." Uh, I didn't really start writing though until about February of 2020, because this was this was in October of 2019. But you know, other responsibilities didn't allow me to really start writing until about February. And then guess what? Everything was on fire. <laughs> and so, anyway, that's that's a long rambling answer to the question you ask about why did I write this book? Well, that's why. That's why.
1: Right. So you're so I can see you on the Camino, and you're seeing this sort of ancient world when faith, as you put it, was more friendly. The culture, of the world that they lived in, and then you're thinking, wow, look where we are now. Right. And thinking, well, it's very different now. We are. So one of the things I love about the book is that you you give an analysis or at least a historical understanding of how did we get here. And so here's what I want to do, Brian. I, I'm going to try something on today. Okay. And it, it may be a complete bust, but we'll see. I am I was imagining as I was preparing for this to have you on the show that you and I are walking the Camino, mm. which I've not ever done. I've seen lots of pictures. I've had two, well, including you, three friends who've done it. So I've, I feel like I've seen it because we and just won't shut up about
0: it. I know how And yeah, walk. and that's the other thing about you
1: guys. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I imagine Jim and Brian we are walking along and I'm just going to lob out some cuz cuz we'd have a lot of time to talk on these 12 to 15 mile walks. We'd have time to just unpack stuff. I'm going to throw out some ideas that I picked up from your book and let you riff on it. Is that okay? Sure. So we're walking along and I would say this. I would say, "Okay, the first thing I want to talk about is that the world that we're living in, to quote Thomas Dolby, is a world that has been blinded by science. Mm. That we have in, and you cite Marx and Freud and Nietzsche as the masters of suspicion, and that's that the human person is really driven by money, sex, and power. I might add Darwin to the to the mix to say that that humans are just animals. But the culmination seems to be that the the worldview now. Is secularism, which is the view that reality is non spiritual. Mm-hmm. There is no soul, there's no spirit. And secularism itself has to be embraced by faith. Like you have to believe in secularism. Of course. It takes faith to believe it. But the world that we're living in is now has accepted secularism as the dominant worldview, the dominant narrative. And any state university in this country. That's where it's operating from. That's where the the marketplace is operating from. If a person talks about faith in any way, it has to be just personal, just, well, this is my own religious practice or something. But the accepted worldview has become that. Is that an accurate assessment of of how you would say we got here? Or what would you add to that?
0: No, I think that's an accurate assessment. And I think it's what Nietzsche did accurately foresee. But if we have the conversation, if we're just walking and you bring this up, I would say, yes, the rise of scientism is probably the root culprit to the loss of faith and the rise of secularism. But I just hastily want to add this, that as we have this discussion, I am not casting this in culture war terms.
1: Mm.
0: I I I don't have any antagonism towards science except possibly one, and I'll get to that. If someone says, okay, yes we live in a secular age and that's why we need to have you know prayer back in schools, you know state schools, and we need to get the Ten Commandments up in the county courthouse, I think that's all just terribly misguided and wrongheaded. And you have two you have kind of a militant secularism and you have a Christian fundamentalism that both spring from this same poisoned well. So I'm, I, I, I'm not combative about this. I understand what has occurred. And I tell, I tell my congregation, I mean, I don't know. Some people may think this is a controversial statement from a pastor. I don't I mean, I've said it for years now. I say it regularly. I say I don't know of any major peer-reviewed scientific theory that is any threat to my Christian faith. And so I'm not an antagonist toward science with one exception. And that is when science drifts into the superstition of materialism, and I don't—I'm using materialism as a as a as a philosophy, uh, logical positivism. That, that that in other words, uh, what we had with the with the Enlightenment beginning—I I, date it. This is just me, but I think it's as good a date as any, 1638, in the publication of Rene Descartes' Discourse on Method, and you have coming from that an idea that the phenomenon of being can be entirely understood through empiricism, that is, through examining what we are able to sense through the five physical senses and the various scientific magnifications of these senses. There's why I push back. I say, I don't have any argument at what science observes in the material world. But when, they, but when science says, and we have encountered and discovered all that can be known uh, in the phenomenon of being, and it's limited to the material world and the empirical method, that's when I push back. Right. Um, that, is, that is a form of atheism that says that God cannot exist and that the spiritual world is unreal. If people are struggling with theodicy that is the claim that God is all powerful and all good and all knowing, and yet we have the problem of pain and suffering in the world. I understand that. I understand people start struggling with forms of agnosticism. I get that. You know, where there's profound doubt, but but I I can't I I can't regard atheism as anything better than rank superstition. It's just that's just all it is. And so uh, what I'm calling people to do now. I'm rushing ahead here. Maybe I should slow down. But there is an organ for encountering uh, the things of the Spirit, and it's generally referred to as the heart. Uh, there are other words we can use, but that's probably as good as any. And maybe, maybe I ought to slow down here. Uh, but, but I'll just tie this up by saying what's happened in the Enlightenment, in, in our post-Enlightenment age, is that we have been conditioned, we've been in fact told, that that which is experienced through the heart cannot be actually true or real. And that's where we need to push back and, and should mm-hmm. push back. And by the way, uh, materialism as a philosophy does not represent cutting-edge philosophy. It's very maybe late 19th, early 20th century at best. It is not the current state of, uh, of cutting-edge philosophy or science for that matter.
1: Hmm. Hmm. yeah materialism being that all there is in the world is the material world sort of like Carl Sagan's thing the cosmos is all there is all there ever was all there ever will be was his way of saying that, that there is no spiritual dimension right. if it's not material if it's not empirical if I can't touch it see it test it it doesn't exist so so your analysis of kind of where how did we get here with with those masters of suspicion and 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 then you add I think two important things like uh, what happened in the 20th century with two world wars and genocide beyond belief. And a lot of the things that we thought helped make the universe make sense suddenly didn't. So one one way of, of approaching it. So if, if my first one was the blinded by science, I'm going to stay with bees here. I've got, since I'm with BZ, I've got killer bees. <laughs> so you got blinded by science. The next one is that in some sense, and I think the roots of this with historical criticism or higher criticism one of the results is that the Bible became bunk. Like the, the Bible in this mm-hmm. last hundred years suddenly was also under attack, and you saw this this movement to to react to that. BB Warfield and writing the fundamentals, and and other people saying, mm, "Okay, we got to push back here because the Bible is authoritative." And then they went so far as to say, "Well, it's inerrant. Like it doesn't even it's on a, on a on a human." textbook level, it's perfect. So we moved into a whole nother direction that maybe didn't help us or maybe left us with some other issues. How would you critique that Christian response?
0: Yeah, Yeah, Christian fundamentalism is a wrongheaded reaction to the Enlightenment, uh, where suddenly you are fighting battles that you don't need to fight um if you feel like well i have to prove that the bible is scientifically accurate you are you are trying to make the bible do something it is not intended to do it is a repository of received wisdom of spiritual wisdom a way of understanding our role in In life, in the world. It's telling the big story of redemption. It's doing a lot of things, but it's not trying to do science. And it's not necessarily even trying to do history as we would understand it as modern people. That's not its point. And so the Bible can be deeply, profoundly, spiritually true, and not necessarily be uh, scientifically or even at times historically accurate, because that's not its task. It doesn't need to be that way. But once we try to make it that way, we fight battles that too often end up all or nothing. So even so you you will see people. I mean this happens. This is this is crazy but this happens that a certain way of reading the Bible results in them being convinced that the universe itself is 6,000 years old or less. It cannot be 13.8 billion years old plus or minus 0.04%, which is in fact all the evidence. And so if 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 eventually the reality that the universe is 13.8 billion years old um, wins the day, then they feel like they have to get rid of the Bible and the Christian faith, and everything goes with it. And so we need to allow scripture to be what it is. It is our canonical text, it's authoritative in one sense, informing Christian faith. But this is a practice of the church and of theology, not of. See, what happens sometimes, Jim, is people make the mistake—this is especially true among Protestants, especially true among uh, a certain strand of Protestantism—that the Bible ends up equaling Christianity, mm. and it it's just not the case. The Bible is the canonical text within the Christian religion, but we need to understand that Christianity is a religion, and we need to understand that the Bible is a part of that religion, and keep all of these terms— uh, well-defined, and not get them all mixed up. For example, this is a little bit off what we were talking about with the Bible, but it's related. Christians should not claim that Christianity is absolute truth. That is not our claim. Our claim is that Jesus is the truth that Jesus is the Logos of God, the Word of God made flesh, and Jesus Christ is truth, but Christianity is the religion that develops around and in response to the reality of the Logos becoming flesh in life, death, burial, resurrection. We see that there is this particular scientific method that is employed in understanding the world around us, which leads to all kinds of things, including us being able to do a podcast over ZenCaster though we're you know hundreds of miles apart. Uh, that's all good and fine it's not much help though in understanding god and the meaning of life and things that belong to the spirit mm-hmm. well what happens though once once the scientific method is established then you see christians sort of nervously scrambling around saying well we've got to have something too that we can apply the same methodology to and we say okay we're going to stu- I'm, we're going to study the bible like a scientist and that is Not the right approach. We studied the scriptures as as theologians. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a place for textual criticism and and hermeneutics along those lines. But basically, we engage with the with with the text as theologians, not as uh, empirical scientists. I I don't know if I did a good job responding.
1: No, that's excellent. That's excellent. Well, let me share a story that I think illustrates what you're getting at. a couple of years ago, a friend of mine, we were college roommates. He he, he said, Jim, I, I need your help on something. I said, what's up? He said, well, my son is at this really conservative Christian school. And they brought in a speaker um, who was going to sort of defend the Bible. And he gave this talk and I listened to the talk. And so he sent me the link about this, this talk this guy gave. And what this guy proposed is that on Noah's Ark, that <laughs> Noah had, Baby dinosaurs. (laughs) So that's my next B. So I got blinded by science, Bible spunk. But baby dinosaurs, the reason they're baby, because if you had big ones, they'd eat you. So you have to So Noah somehow managed to go capture baby dinosaurs, got them on the ark. Because, as you said, we have to explain these fossil records. I mean, they're there, but the Bible doesn't talk about dinosaurs. So clearly that's what happened. Yeah, this is just a
0: profound exercise in missing the point. (laughs) Right? He and, and was very I'm,
1: serious about it, though. This guy was really trying to present his case. I well, just thought okay. it was nasty. Well,
0: okay, so <laughs> this is this is the problem, though. Uh, you know, you'll get some that will be persuaded by this, you know, nonsense. Um, <clears throat> you know, whatever. But I mean, this isn't a college, you say?
1: No, what no, is- it was a it was a Christian middle school.
0: Okay, all right, well. Well, yeah. what happens though is, okay, so, so all right, so you have these Christian middle schoolers that have been taught, you know, that they're baby dinosaurs <laughs> on the ark. Okay, well, you know, it's not that hard to convince a middle schooler of something like that. But what happens when they end up, you know, at KU as a freshman? Mm. And they just suddenly realize how ridiculous and implausible that whole notion is. Then they feel like, Christianity has been discredited. No, what's been discredited is a fundamentalist perversion of Christianity. But, they, but it gets all tied together so tightly that, look, I, I, I see I see, fundamentalist Christians lose their faith but keep their fundamentalism. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. they, they, they just swing from one fundamentalism to another. And that's part of the problem with fundamentalism. It allows no room for questioning and nuance and adjustment, self-critique, growth, expansion. There's no room for any of that. And so when we raise children in a fundamentalist form of the faith, it really becomes an all-or-nothing proposition. And you're putting a lot on the line. And so either we got to have baby dinosaurs on Noah's Ark or Christianity is a hoax or something like that. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, that's you're taking quite a risk with little Timmy's faith, because he may hit 19 and decide, all of this is just nonsense, this is ridiculous, this is a hoax, I'm not going to have anything to do with Christianity. And these are not theoretical. Uh, I'm I'm not speaking out of theory, I'm speaking out of a pastor who has seen this happen to people. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it was fascinating, but I thought that was an example of what the reaction. So you've got Culture pushing in one direction, we've got we need to have the Bible as authoritative, but then we push this other direction that it really, as you said, can't live up to because it, the text isn't designed to be what we're making it into being. Um, so you got the blinded by science, you got the Bible's bunk, you got baby dinosaurs. My next B though, and I think it's really at baby the core dinosaurs. Of the book.
0: There, there needs to be like a rock band, <laughs> baby dinosaurs, or at least an album, baby baby dinosaurs on the ark or something. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to forget that. For a while.
1: No, I don't think you it's gonna are. to be a regular line for me for a while. <laughs> it, it 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 stuck with me too. Um <laughs> obviously. You know, but, I'm
0: thinking though, they're on the arc for like a year. I you know, how how long does it take for a baby Tyrannosaurus rex to become a problem? <laughs> See, I can't let it go. <laughs> you're
1: you're thinking <laughs> You're thinking too logically. Okay, (laughs) can't we can't be having this much fun? Um, So, okay, but now the the more serious of the bees is beauty, and my understanding, and and of course your wonderful book, Beauty Will Save the World, but uh, is that where you end up? Sort of saying is the ultimate beauty is is Christ, and that's what we our our souls were designed for. This kind of beauty, we we hunger for it, we long for it. We encounter Jesus, and we see that kind of beauty. And and in the context of that, you tell what is really one of my favorite stories you tell about being on a train in Paris, which by the way, the book is everything's on fire when everything's on fire, faith forged from the ashes. Um, Author Brian Zond is with us, but you, you tell the story about you, a man, a young man named you. Uh, Could you tell that story? Because that I think, well, it's a central story. I think to what you're trying to get at. Yeah,
0: I'll see if I can give you a short version of it. <laughs> I can give you a half an hour version, but we don't want to do that. <laughs> so it was uh, October of 2004. I was in Paris. I had occasion to uh, attend an event at Notre Dame that was telling the history of the cathedral and in, in English-speaking multimedia presentation. So I I was staying up north near Saint-Denis, took the train into the city center, got there too early, ended up going over to the Shakespeare and Company bookstore, buying a book, uh, so to have something to read while I waited and on the train ride back, and it was The Idiot by Fyodor Dostoevsky. I went and I saw the presentation. I was uh, moved by it, even though it was really just about the architecture. Still, just the idea of the, the kind of faith that it takes to build a cathedral moved me. And at the end of it, I prayed and I said, God, use me more in this city. Uh, Then I left, got on a train, was heading back. We went a stop or two. People come or go. I'm not paying much attention. I'm reading my book. But a young man had gotten on and had sat opposite me on the train. And he said to me, oh, that's an interesting book you're reading there. And The Idiot by Fyodor Dostoevsky. I said, oh yeah. I said, have you read this? He said, I'm reading it right now. And um, I said, well, that's quite remarkable. And we began to have this discussion. Now, you need to know that the strange thing is I bought a copy of The Idiot, a paperback copy there at Shakespeare and Company. Um, I already had a copy of The Idiot. I can see it from where I'm sitting. It's across the room, but I can see it on the bookshelf. I had a very nice everyman library copy of it. I had it in my hotel with me. But I thought, well, I can. I'll, it was very extravagant to spend twelve euros for a paperback book of a, of a book that I had the hardback in my hotel room. But I thought, ah, you know, I can. I have about an hour to read, so I spent twelve euros to read a book for an hour. Again, extravagant, but it's central to the story because that's how I meet this young man whose name was you, which always makes telling the story interesting. You was with me on on the train and. <laughs> In, in Paris. And it happened to be the day that Jacques Derrida, the founder of deconstruction theory, had died. Famous French philosopher. And we discussed that a little bit. We talked about this, that, and the other thing. And uh, I asked him, I said, well, what are you doing? He said, well, I just graduated from college and I'm backpacking across Europe. I said, oh, that's fantastic. I said, what was your degree? And he said, well, I, I had a double degree. And I was impressed. I said, okay, you're an ambitious young man. What was your, what was your double degree? And he said, well, I had a, I got a degree in political science and world history. I said, well, that's a good combination of degrees. Political science is the study of human governance, and world history is the record of our failures at it. <laughs> and he laughed too, you know. And so then I asked him, I said, well, you know, you're a, a bright young man, and, and uh, you have now degrees in political science and world history. What hope do you have for this world? And he said, oh, I have no hope. And I thought, well, that's... That's very discouraging to be, you know, however old he was, probably 22 or something like that, and just setting out in life and be hopeless. And so we were discussing back and forth, and and all of a sudden he said to me, he said, I I understand that Fyodor Dostoevsky was a Christian. Do you know anything about that? (laughs) And I thought, oh, if you only knew. <laughs> yeah, I said, yeah, I do. I do know it, meaning that I, I could probably speak on Christianity, but I actually know quite a bit about Fyodor Dostoevsky. That's something, something of an obsession with me. And so I gave him a brief thumbnail sketch of how Dostoevsky, uh, as a young man, had been raised in the church as a believer, but had become an agnostic and was part of a subversive writers group, in Tsarist Russia in St. Petersburg, had been arrested, sentenced to death uh, when he was 26 years old. At the last moment, the Tsar commuted the sentence from death to four years hard labor in Siberia and five years exile. And uh, so I'm telling this to you on the train in Paris on the day that Derrida died. And I told him about how Dostoevsky goes into the prison, he's handed a copy of the Gospels, it's the only book that this very literate man had for four years, and he read the Gospels over and over, particularly the Gospel of John, and it revived his faith. And subsequently, all of his novels that follow his his prison experience in some way or another, uh, the Gospel is in those wonderful novels, you know, Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, that's what I was reading, Demons, Brothers Karamazov, those kind of Masterpieces. So I'm telling this to you on the train, and and uh, you became interested. And he said, "Well, wh- what do you do?" <laughs> I said, "Well, I'm a pastor." And you said, "No way! <laughs> yeah, I am." And then he got very serious, and he said, "Well, since you're a pastor, I'll tell you something. I um I was raised in a Christian home, but in high school I became an atheist, and I've been an atheist all through high school and college." Today, I went to visit Notre Dame just to see the architecture. You know, I said, yeah, I know. He said, but when I walked in, I was just captured by the beauty. And I knew, I know there's a God. And I tried to pray. I tried to pray to the God that I had known as a child, but I don't think he heard me because because I walked away so long ago. That's what you said to me. I said, you, he did too hear you. I just came from Notre Dame. I too just prayed there. I said, God, use me more in this city and look at this. God is saying, wait a minute, I can answer two prayers at the same time. I had to buy this copy, this paperback copy of The Idiot. I already have a nice hardback copy in my hotel room, but I had to have it so you could see it so that we could have this conversation. And I finally just asked him, I said, you, would you like to pray? And he said, yes. And we prayed together and and he was turning back toward his faith in Jesus Christ. And we said, amen. And I looked up and I was at my stop. I thought I thought we still had quite a ways to go, but time had flown. And I, I said, you, I have to go. And uh, I just jumped off the train and off it went. And I stood on that platform that night and I felt like an angel. <laughs> I just felt mm. like I'd been sent by God. And people asked me, did you get his email? I said, angels don't ask for email. And so... <laughs> You know that's I've been telling that story since 2004 so for you know so going on 18 years. I've told it many times, and if I have the time, I can tell it much more in a much more compelling fashion, you know if I take a half an hour to tell it. Uh, but I've told it for years. But then April of 2019, something happened that kind of gives a postscript to this story. and it was the Monday of Holy Week, April 15th. We just concluded one of our many, many prayer services that we have during Holy Week at Word of Life Church. And I got an alert on my phone that Notre Dame was on fire. Now, I've I've been to Paris many times, and this is the honest truth, Jim, that if I can, when I'm in Notre Dame, I will visit Notre Dame every day, if I can. Uh, I love it that much. I mean, it just speaks to me, the beauty of it. I'm just drawn to it. And the idea that it was on fire horrified me. I turned on the television and I, for four hours I just, I hardly moved. I just stared in dismay at Notre Dame. Let's say it in English, our mother in flames. And here's the thing you know, Paris is more or less the center of Western secularism. And Parisians, day after day, walking past Notre Dame with shoulder shrugging indifference is very much a metaphor, a picture of what we mean by secularism. And yet, that isn't what happened in Paris that day. Our mother is on fire, and no one is shouting, burn it all down, hashtag empty the pews. Rather, everyone was weeping. People that maybe would have said the day before they had no interest in notre dame or christian faith somehow they knew but this is precious and the idea that it could be lost uh, drove them sometimes to prayer often to tears but no one seemed to be unmoved by it it makes me wonder i understand Uh, to a certain extent, the kind of anger and vitriol that can be directed toward, quote, the church. I understand that. The church has its sins and its scandals and its failures, and I understand a kind of reaction to it. Although I would hasten to add, as René Girard has said, Voltaire and his successors only criticize Christianity with Christianity. That's a profound statement to Mm -hmm. think about. But nevertheless, I think it's easy to say, I want nothing to do with the church, as long as you think in the back of your mind somehow it'll always be there if you ever need it or to do whatever good it can. But the idea that it could be lost is really a rather terrible... I mean, does are there serious people out there that actually believe that the world would be better off without that which keeps alive the message of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Son of God who forgives sinners? Uh, I mean, do we really think the world would be better off without that message? And I think the idea that it could be lost uh, is something that does give people pause. Well, as it turns out, uh, and I read quite a bit about this after after the fact, that Notre Dame, in fact, came very close to being lost, maybe within 20 minutes. If those towers had collapsed, the whole thing would have been lost. And a fire company had been... ordered to go up into those towers. I've gone up in those towers. I know what it's like to go up these winding, winding, winding stairs with hoses. And a particular fire company said, no, we're not going in. It's too dangerous. And it was dangerous. But another company volunteered. They said, no, we'll go. And they knew the risk. They knew they could be uh, going to their doom, but they believed that it was worth it to try to save Notre Dame. I'm very moved by that story. And Jim... I'm 62 now, you know what I want to do? I I want to be a part of the company that says, I know it's on fire, but it's worth saving. Uh, I'll do whatever I can to help drag these hoses up into these towers, because what we have is precious. I know it's flawed, but it's also precious. And so that's you know, that's as much of, that's, that is as accurate a description of what I'm trying to do these days as anything. I, mm. I just want to be a part of that company, taking the fire hoses up into Notre Dame, our mother, when everything's on fire.
1: Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. And brother, I am glad you are on our team doing that and uh, speaking for that and writing about that. You are a gifted communicator, gifted scholar, but you have a pastor's heart too. You care about People And it just comes through, Brian. I just appreciate you so much. And your latest book, When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes, is yet another great contribution to this body of work that you've already given us. And I hope there's more to come because you have even more to say. Although I I learned today you won't try to find what to write. You're just. Well, thank you. First of (laughs) all, thank you, Jim.
0: And secondly, I am sitting at my writing desk and it is very cluttered because I'm. Five chapters into a new book entitled
1: The <laughs> Wood Between the Worlds, which is a book on the cross. So, <laughs> Oh, nice. Wonderful. You, see, there you, you go. see how the
0: title works, don't you?
1: Yes, I do. Right. That's, that's, that's really a theft
0: good. from uh, C.S. Lewis, oh. who in the Chronicles of Narnia, there is actually a place, an actual woods, that is the wood between the worlds, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, okay, you can see what I'm doing with that. I, yeah, the I got it. Is the wood between the worlds.
1: Okay. So now I, now that I have you on the spot, <laughs> will you come back on the Things About Podcast to talk about that well, book when it's done? Of course, I will, Jim. All you have to there do is ask, is. and I'll be there. <laughs> All you have to do is call, and I'll be there. <laughs> Winter, spring, summer, fall, however the song goes. <laughs> that's right. That's great. You've got a friend. I think yeah, that's what you're trying exactly. to tell me. Indeed. I'm happy to be your friend, brother. Brian, thank you for being on the podcast. This oh, thank is fantastic. You. I hope that people will go out and get this book and read it. I think it's so helpful because the world, well, it really, it does feel on fire now. Um, but we need some help in navigating through this. And your book is is one of the best I've read in that regard. So thank you. Thank you. And uh, let's do this again. Yes. All right. I hope you join me next week. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things About Podcast, you can. You can do so on our website, ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind, your answer will be, things above.